We're continuing our hungry series. This is the second week of that. And we are looking at what it means to be hungry to the finish, to keep going, to pursue, to not give up on our faith. And like I mentioned, the finish might be different depending on where you're at this morning. For some of you, you might be facing some really difficult immediate circumstances, maybe a really difficult situation at school or at work or in college. It might be um, that you have uh, financial kind of struggles that you're kind of wrestling with and wanting to see the finish of. It might be that God has put a vision and a dream in your heart and that he is calling you to keep going until it's through and until there's a completion on that. It might be that you have some massive questions this morning and this this morning it's about completing the pursuit of God. But for all of us this morning, this is a journey towards God. This is finishing that journey towards God and a hunger for that finish. Um, You know, this idea of giving up on journey, it's a funny one because we often don't plan to give up on things, but often we don't plan not to. And that this morning, I guess, is what I wanted to speak into a little bit. Um, Giving up is so natural for so many of us. We're really encouraged in a consumer culture to walk away and to leave something and to give up on something if it doesn't suit our needs. Um, I can remember when I was told for the first time that I had to have a two-year phone contract on my mobile, the outrage that swelled within me because what if a better handset came out during that time? What if there were cheaper deals? What if I just didn't want to be with you anymore? And all of a sudden, this anxiety around committing to something for two years. But it's, it's the way we're wired. It's the way we're programmed. We're taught as consumers that we have a right that if something doesn't suit us, if something isn't convenient, if something didn't work out the way that we hoped it would, that we have a right to walk away and give up on that thing and find a better option elsewhere. You know, when I was a teenager, um, the average attention span was six, no, was eight to 10 seconds. Now, uh, I am 31, so about 12 years later, the average attention span is six to eight seconds. And that means that every six to eight seconds, your brain is evaluating what you're looking at and going, is this still worth my time and attention? Is there something else that's more interesting? Something else that's more worthwhile? Something else that's easier to buy into? And if there is, our brains opt for it. We're hardwired that way in culture at the moment, which is a real shame because what does that mean for the rest of our lives? What does that say to the other commitments that we have and particularly our journey of faith and faithfulness and pursuing God and not giving up even when things are really difficult? When I was little, I grew up in a village um, and there was a church in the village that I attended. And in this village, there was, and in this church, there was a lady called Margrita. Um, Now, I never really got to know her Uh, very well. But I remember things about her as a child. I remember that she used to wear these woolen gloves that were fingerless gloves because she played the organ in our church. So she would sit in our church and play the organ in her fingerless woolly gloves. And I remember that she had black hair that she would tie back into a a kind of bun and shove a pencil through it. And because I didn't know her very well, I never saw her smile. So I was always really scared of Margarita. And she was married to this guy called Pete, Peter. And um, Peter and Margarita, they, it rhymes, uh, they, uh, um, they, they took responsibility over this sort of patch of grass in our village. And um, it was nowhere near their house. They just chose to do it of their own goodwill. There was a main road that travels through the middle of the village that I grew up in. And um, there's a long patch of grass beside it. 
And I remember as a child, Margarita and Peter, caring for and tending for this patch of grass. They would plant daffodils. And I remember um, as a teenager, when people came along and kicked the heads off these daffodils, and I got really angry with them because someone had planted them there. Um, and they would like pull up weeds, they would pick litter, they would care for this grass. And I'd totally forgotten about this. Until a couple of weeks ago, I drove home during the day through my village. And uh, what happened was I saw Peter on this patch of grass. And you know, it was years later. He was a lot older than he was when I first saw him. But he still faithfully tended that piece of grass. You know, I don't know what's happened in his life. I don't know uh, the things that he's had to face personally. But whatever the season, externally, he has been faithful on the land that he believes God has put on his heart to tend. You know, if someone has that attitude towards a piece of grass, how much more should we have that attitude towards our journey of faith and our relationship with God? That faithfulness, that determination to continue no matter what you face. So this morning, I want to ask us, do we carry that determination? Do we carry that hunger for the finish, for the promises of God and for the things that God has for us? And for that day, eventually, when we will meet God face to face. So I'm going to talk about this, I guess, in three ways this morning, the three points classic. Um, First of all, uh, I want to talk about getting hungry. So how do we get hungry for the finish? Leon did a brilliant talk of of kind of getting hungry last week. Um, But I want to kind of continue exploring that a little Uh, in the context of this. And to do that, I want to tell, retell a story in the Bible. Um, Actually, I'm probably retelling a lot of the uh, first few books of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is the first half of the Bible. And um, when God kind of put his plans together, uh, his intention was that he would have a nation that was his own. He would build this nation called the Israelites and he would have relationship with them. He would give them purpose. He would protect them and be with them. And uh, they would be different from other nations. And the idea was that they would communicate what God was like to the rest of the world. So a part of the deal of this establishing them as a nation, a really big part of the deal is that God said that he would give them a land. In a sense, that was their finish line. That was their point where they really began to establish as a people. And then God promised that out of that people, God would bring someone who ended up being Jesus, who would change eternity. But for them, this this idea of getting land really was their finish line. This is what God had promised them. But it didn't start with the nation. It started way back on the journey with one man, a guy called Abraham, whose name, first of all, was Abram. So we're going to read now from Genesis Uh, And we're going to read what God says to Abram, I guess at the start of this pursuit of the finish. So this is Genesis 15, verses 12 to 17. This is God speaking with Abram. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. A terrifying darkness came down over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. There were some carcasses on the floor. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said... I have given you this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. 
So God speaks to Abraham, whose name is later changed to Abraham, and says, I have a promise for you. I'm setting this as your finish line. Your descendants will have a land, this land that you are now on. And this is the journey that you're going to go on to get it. But the finish line is there and you will have it. This is your goal. So um, they kind of have this agreement, this promise. And I'm about to give you a very quick whistle-stop tour of uh, part of the Old Testament. There are a lot of details left out, forgive me. But this is kind of the gist. So um, Abraham then has a son called Isaac. Isaac then has uh, some twins called Esau and Jacob. Now Jacob um, then has 12 sons. And the 12 sons is a story you may well know of Joseph and his multicolored coat. So one of his sons is Joseph. Joseph uh, isn't like, he, he makes some really bad relational choices and isn't really liked by his brothers. So his brothers have enough of him, sell him off to slavery, cut a very long story short, very long. He ends up in Egypt and uh, he ends up working for Pharaoh in Egypt. And Egypt are going through a time of famine and Joseph is put in charge of all of the provisions. So basically to get um, Egypt through this famine. And he does a really good job of it. And Pharaoh's really pleased with him. So Joseph says, well, can all my family come and live in Egypt? Because that way they won't suffer the famine. So Pharaoh says, yeah, sure. Why not? Bring them in. So those guys go and live in Egypt with Joseph under Pharaoh's rule. And time begins to pass. And what happens is the descendants of Abraham, they multiply and they grow and they grow and they grow. And there's loads and loads of them. And over time, Pharaoh's change and the next Pharaoh's come in. And all of a sudden, there's lots and lots of Israelites. And Pharaoh can't remember why they were there. And the Egyptians start to get a little bit antsy about their presence. And so there are so many of them. The only way we can control them is by turning them into our slaves. So the Israelites become slaves in Egypt, at which point God raises up a guy called Moses to set the Israelites free so that they can go and take their own nation, the nation and the land that God has promised them. Now, that is a very whistle-stop tour. Uh, you may want to go back and read in the details for yourself. It's all very interesting. Um, but we, we meet them again where they have come out of Egypt and travelled through the desert and they're stood on the edge of this land that God has promised them. And what they do is Moses decides to send out 12 spies. 12 spies for 40 days to kind of go and do some soil tests, see what the land's like, see what's going to happen if they try and take this land. And these spies come back with a report to Moses and the rest of the country around what they have found. So we're now going to read from Numbers which is where the story continues. So this is the Israelites stood on the edge of the promise, stood on the edge of the finish line that God has set them. So this is Numbers 13, uh, verse 25 and onwards. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them and the fruit that they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. Even, we even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, Jezubites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood there before Moses. Caleb was one of the spies. He says, let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We cannot go up against them. They're stronger than we are. 
So they spread this bad report about the land among the people of Israel. The land we traveled through and explored, um, they will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers and that's what they thought too. And so you've got this group that comes back from this kind of scouting expedition and they're divided. You see, two of the guys on this expedition see the finish line and they are hungry for the finish line. They see the fruit, literally the fruit that God said would be in that land, but also the fruit of the situation, the fruit that God promised he would plant as um I guess, the purpose of that nation, they see the bigger picture and they're hungry for it. But the other 10, they see the fruit, but they see that between them and the fruit stand some giants. And their fear of the giants is greater than their hunger for the fruit. And so I guess I want to ask this morning, if we believe that God has a finish line for us, whatever that may look like this morning for you, I wonder, are there some giants stood between you and that finish line? Because Caleb and Joshua, they didn't not acknowledge the giants, they didn't ignore them, but their hunger for the fruit was greater than their fear of the giants. And what your giant may look like this morning may be very different from the person sat next to you. It might be that your giant is exams and you've got loads of revision and you don't know how you're going to do your exams. It might be that uh, your marriage is, is really struggling. It might be there's a really tough uh, situation going on at work. It could be an addiction that you're battling. It could be a secret that you don't want anyone to know, but you know that you need to talk to someone about it. Whatever your giant is this morning, whatever God is calling you into that seems way too big for you, will our hunger for the fruit be greater than our fear of that giant. There's something that I've learned, and that, if I'm honest, is that wherever there is fruit, there will always be giants. Because that is how we grow our strength by battling these giants. But this morning, I want to ask us are we hungry for the fruit, or are we actually fearful of the giants? So that's the first point get hungry. Secondly, we need to get focused. Now, for these guys, the um, giants actually, although they were fierce, they acted as a distraction, a distraction from what God had called them to, a distraction from the things of God. And it's so easy for us to get distracted. I'm, a, I'm someone who's so easily distracted and our lives are so full of things. It is easy to have lots of distractions. Again, it could be that we've got exams on and revision actually distracts us from our hunger for God. It could be that we're just busy. This is a huge one for me. I say yes to everything then I'm so busy and I think, why did I say yes to everything again? Again, and my hunger for gold gets sapped up because I'm busy running around. It could be consumerism and just stuff. It could be work. There are so many things that can distract us from this hunger for God first and foremost. But the important thing is when a distraction looms is that we remember why we were focused on the thing we were focused on in the first place. You see, these Israelites let them get them. <laughs> these Israelites let themselves, there we go, be distracted. And actually that has huge consequences. You see, 10 of these guys said, no, I, I, I'm scared of these giants. I'm going to be distracted by this fear that I have, that this thing I'm facing is going to, going to distract me. And what happens is God said to them, do you know, I don't, I don't know that you're hungry enough. And so they turn around and a journey that should have taken 11 days from where they were to this place, they spend 40 years walking in circles until the next generation is moved up and is ready to take on the finish line that he had set for them. A whole generation just miss it because they're distracted. 
And I really, really would hate for that to be anything that we would have ourselves. Um, the thing I believe that caused this distraction, actually, it sort of it hinted to it in that verse that I just read, was that some of those 10 began to spread a bad report. Some of them began to say things that were negative. And the rest of Israel let themselves be influenced, negatively influenced by those words. You know, influence is so important when it comes to being hungry. I think people can have influence over us and it either feeds our hunger or feeds our distraction because influence creates culture. Culture sets our vision and that leads to what we focus on. And if it's not hunger, it may well be distraction. I don't know um, whether you would say that you surround yourselves with people who feed your hunger and keep you focused, uh, but I saw a brilliant example of this in the last couple of weeks. Um, there's a program that I absolutely love called Ultimate Hell Week. I don't know if any of you guys have watched that. It's fantastic. Uh, I know it doesn't sound very pleasant, but let me unpack it. Um, it's a group of athletes and people who are not professional athletes, but kind of in really, really good shape. And they are taken away. The, these guys in this series went to South Africa. And they're put through their paces for about 10 days. And they are uh, left with some of the best and most brutal kind of military um, training uh, advisors in the world. So each every day, there's about two days where you are left in charge. You're left sort of led by, sorry, like um, the SAS or someone. And in this series, uh, they had the Polish military come in and do a couple of days with them. And uh, they, they had to do this exercise. They were taken out into South Africa, into like the middle of the desert. And they were told that they had to do a 10K run in the middle of the day. Um, now, that's about six miles. They were then given a backpack to wear, which was 75 kilograms. So they're in 38 degree heat. They have to run six miles, and it's so like psychologically tough because they run backwards and forwards. So it's not like a nice run. It's kind of probably beyond the length of this building, just just backwards and forwards for six miles in 38 degree heat with 75k on their back. And they know that if they drop out, they're out of the process. So they have to get to the finish. They have to. And so they run backwards and forwards, thinking that their finish line is when they finish this race. They finish this run. So they they run backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. They get to the end of their race they go up to the guy who's in charge and he says okay that's the first part over now you have to go up there and they look and it's this massive hill like I it's it's a big I think somewhere between a hill and a mountain like it's a but no not a mountain it's a really big hill massive hill and they have to run up to the top of this mountain with this this bag on their back having done this run in this heat they've been in the heat for two and a half hours by this point and they have to get to the top and they're told a code by somebody and they have to memorize that code, run back down the hill, quote it to the guy who's in charge. And if they quote it exactly right, they can finish. So this begins to happen and uh, they begin this run up the hill and down the hill. But there was this one girl called Downham who really, really struggled. She found it really difficult. And um, she was kind of lagging behind everyone and got to the finish and found out that she then had to run up this hill and you kind of saw this look. I mean, people when they were running were sort of staggering all over the place, dragging their feet. You wondered if the heat was kind of sending them a little bit crazy. And um, she saw that she had to run up this hill and she barely had it in her. She staggers up this hill, gets to the top, gets the code, comes back down, quotes it. It's the wrong code. She has to run all the way back up this hill, gets to the top. He tells her the code. She runs back down like she is empty. You, there's just, she's a shell. She gets to the guy. She quotes the code. It's the wrong code. 
she has to go back up this hill a third time. By this point, everyone else has finished. She's the last person standing. And you see all her teammates kind of sitting in the shade, de- like dehydrating, not de- rehydrating, wrong word, um, <laughs> rehydrating. And um, you see one of them turn to the other and go, can we run with her? And so one of them goes out to this officer and says, permission to cheer down him on, sir. And he's like, granted. And um and I'm sitting there on my sofa, sobbing by this point. It's just too much for me. And uh, this whole team, oh, I'm getting emotional now. They come out and they start running alongside her up this hill. And they're like, come on down, you can do it, you can do it. And she just knows that she needs to finish. And she runs up this hill and they all run with her. They get to the code, the top, they hear the code and they all chant the code with her on the way down the hill, saying it over and over again, running alongside her, cheering her on. She gets to the bottom, she gives the code and the guy goes, are you sure that's the right code? And she just looks at him and you can see in her face that she is not sure of anything anymore. She just doesn't know. And you see the shot of all her teammates behind her going, come on, come on, come on. She says the code and she completes the race. And her time is over and she has finished. You know, she could not have done that if the culture had been different. Sometimes our journey to the finish is so tough that the only way that we're going to get there is if everyone else is stood around us cheering us on. And so the people that you place around you, the people that you let influence you, the people that you let speak over your life is vitally important. Because those people set the culture. Those people are the people that help fuel that uh, fungus, (laughs) hunger, and um, mm, leave the fungus, help fuel that... (laughs) I nearly did it again. Uh, Hunger. And or or they speak distraction over us. So I want to ask you, are you someone who creates a culture of hunger? Or do you actually not do that and cause people to be a little bit distracted? It's a huge question. So um, the the Israelites choose distraction. Most of them, they, they choose to walk away. And so you see this really sad moment of a generation just missing it. Uh, we're going to read now from Numbers 14, where God speaks about these people who just missed it. This is Numbers 14, 20 to 25. Then the Lord said, I will pardon them as you have requested. But as surely as I live and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, not one of these people will ever enter that land. They have all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I have performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again, they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. They will never, ever even see the land that I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have treated me with contempt will ever see it. But my servant Caleb has a different attitude than the others have. I believe that attitude is this hunger. He has remained loyal to me, so I will bring him into the land that he explored. His descendants will possess their full share of that land. Now, turn around and don't go on towards the land where the Amalekites and the Canaanites live. Tomorrow you must set out for the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. And so they're running their race. The finish is before them. They miss it, have to do a total 180 and go in the other direction. So how do we avoid this distraction? How do we not get distracted? This uh, is a picture of the end of my road. Um, At the end of my road, there is a big fat McDonald's, which I'm sure many of you have driven by. Um, When I first moved into my house, uh, I actually worked um, here in the church buildings with Faze Trust. And so every day, maybe four times a day, sometimes six times a day, I would walk past this McDonald's. And uh, trust me when I say, when I initially moved there, I knew what it was 
to be distracted. Leon last week did a brilliant job of talking about being hungry for the right things. This was a real problem for me. I would walk past, ah, some fries and I'm done. Oh, it's a hot day. I'll just get a McFlurry. Next time, well, it's a milkshake. It's not, it's not even food. Doesn't even count. So I would go past and I would pick stuff up. And I very quickly realised, by the way, Dan Murphy is still yet to learn this lesson. I, I realised that... Um, if I wanted to stay in the clothes that were in my wardrobe, I had to cut this distraction out of my life or get a new wardrobe, as appealing as getting a new wardrobe is. Um, so I had to put some stuff in place to stand against these distractions. So every day when I left my house, I had to make a decision consciously as I walked past that, I was not going to go in. And I had to focus on where I was going to get to because I was ending up being late. So I had to be really, really focused. Do you know, sometimes I think we genuinely believe that our distractions will just go away. They don't often. We defeat them by small choices that we make every day. Every day I had to make four, five, six choices not to walk through those doors. And in the small choices you make every day, you begin to defeat your distractions. Uh, I now run past that McDonald's. Last night, me and Gemma went for a run. And we ran past the McDonald's and as Gemma and I ran past Gemma, we have this thing where when we're walking, running past McDonald's, we have to look really healthy and like we're not tired at all. So as we ran past, Gemma said, right, look athletic. We started sprinting past the windows of McDonald's, looking down on everyone who was eating their burgers. But that's the journey we've come on. From kind of tearing myself away from going past the doors to being able to pass with energy and with life. Because slowly, choice by choice, your distractions become less distracting and your choices get easier. So firstly, we need to get hungry. Secondly, we need to get focused. Thirdly, and maybe most importantly, potentially, we need to get some perspective. I am... Um, I actually did this uh, talk a little bit with the uh, college age guys, uh, the 16 plus guys when we went away. And um, we, on that time together, talked about this a little and I was praying for one of the, the people there. And as I prayed for them, God gave me a picture and it was them stood in front of this massive giant that looked terrifying. And then God was stood beside them, bent down and kind of said, kind of get into my hands, let me hold you in this. They got into their hands and God lifted them up to his height. And do you know, from God's perspective, your giants look a lot smaller. And so from God's perspective, we need to see these giants for what they are. Actually, compared to God, they're not that big, although they feel big to us often. Um, I think getting perspective on our faith is really important. Getting perspective on our life journey um, because do you know you were created for relationship with God? It may be that you have revision and exams. It may be that you have big stuff going on. But the thing that you were created for was for relationship with Jesus. Was for that moment when you meet God face to face. Your purpose, your identity are wrapped up in this finish, wrapped up in this relationship with Jesus. And yet somehow our perspective slips. And some of us think that our relationship with God doesn't matter that much. I'm reading a book at the moment. Um, uh, by uh, Nick Shepherd, and um, it's called Faith Generation. And it talks about this thing. I'm going to read it to you in a second. It talks about this thing in there called moral therapeutic deism. Sounds very exciting and impressive. Uh, and I'm going to explain what that means. But it basically talks about how young people view faith currently and um, their perspective of faith. That really, faith is something that you can opt in or opt out of, that, that, that faith doesn't matter that much. And genuinely, the exact opposite is true. So I just want to read you now 
this uh, from, from this book. It explains what moral therapeutic dynamism is as well. The findings from this are summarised by the lead author, Christian Smith, as a recognisable approach to religion, or mainly Christianity, among young people as moral therapeutic deism. This asserts that young people see faith as being about trying to be good people, moral, that God is essentially there to make us feel good or solve our problems, therapeutic, but such a God is not largely involved in our affairs otherwise, deism. And this view that maybe faith is an additional extra, a relationship with God is something that isn't that big a deal. But before you look at the stunning teenagers and young people in this room and think, well, you guys are in trouble, let me finish reading. Not only that, we are, um, not only, sorry, are we seeing a generational decline in faith, but a transition to a weaker form of faith. One where only 38% of committed Christian parents see it as being important to be proactive in passing on their faith to the next generation. In considering MTD, moral therapeutic days, and Dean argues that this is the faith young people have because it is the faith of their parents. This is our faith. That's tough to hear. You know, our perspective matters how important we see our finish, how important we see our relationship with God matters, not just for us, but because it creates legacy. Um, Before I finish, I just want to tell you one last story. And this is the story of a man that is going to come on the screen here. And his name is John Stephen Aquari. You may have heard this story before. He's a Tanzanian runner, uh, and he took part in a marathon in Mexico, in Mexico City Marathon in 1968. And um, the marathon started in the city, and it finished in this massive stadium. And the runners all lined up, they started the race, the race took place, and it finished in this stadium. Apart from this guy, he didn't finish. An hour after the final people had crossed the finish line, John Stephen Aquari limps into the stadium to this scene. The stadium had emptied. There was no one left. He had a bandage around his knee and he limped the entire way. Partway through his race, he'd sustained an injury and just wasn't able to go on, but he was determined to finish. And so he dragged himself along his race. He limped his way through into the stadium and across the finish line to the few people that were left in the stadium gathering around to applaud him. And a journalist took him aside at the end and said, why didn't you just give up? Why didn't you just stop? It would have been a lot less painful and much easier. And he said this, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start this race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish it. And so I want to ask you this morning, will you have a perspective that says, I will finish whatever I face, If I'm limping most of the way and it takes me a lot longer than everyone else, I will finish. You know, uh, eventually the Israelites did come to the promised land again. Uh, After that generation passed by, after 40 years passed by, they found themselves once again on the edge of the promised land. God gave them a second chance because that's what he does. When we give up, when it's too much, God gives us second chances again and again. And so they found themselves on the edge of this land. And um, Joshua is about to lead people into battle. And God has this to say to him in Joshua 1, 5 to 9. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. You will not, I will not fail you or abandon you. 
Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to give their ancestors. So I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left, and then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Could I ask you to stand, please, if you're able? I'm going to invite the band back up. I would love us just to take a moment, maybe to respond to anything that God has spoken about this morning. But first of all, uh, my f- the first response, I would just love to give an opportunity for people to meet Jesus for the first time. Now, I don't know if you came here this morning and you've not been to church before, or maybe you've been on a journey towards God for a little while. But this idea of completing, carrying on, being hungry for the finish. I wonder whether you, some of you this morning would like to start that race and be determined to get through to the finish. So if I could ask everyone to close their eyes. If this morning you are someone who maybe doesn't know Jesus, but you've sat there this morning thinking, do you know what, this is time. I've got giants, I still need to battle. I've not got all the answers yet. But this is a race that I wanna start running. Then while everyone's eyes are closed, would you pop your hand up in the air for me, just so that I can pray for you? Father God, I thank you for the people who have their hands in the air. And God, I pray that this morning will be the start of an incredible journey. A journey, Father, that they would run and fight to finish. That Jesus, this morning you would start a hunger in their hearts, Lord God, that cannot be satisfied unless it is by you. Father, I thank you for them, God, and I just pray that this will be a significant day for them, a significant start to their journey in a relationship with you that will change their eternity. So we thank you for them, Father, and pray that you would grow that hunger in them. Amen. If you uh, did put your hands up and you responded then, um, I'd really encourage you to go to the Connection Lounge, which is just out the back and around the corner when the service is finished. Um, It would be really great if someone could just kind of encourage you and pray for you. Nothing weird will happen, I promise. Um, But we just love to encourage you. But I would love to pray for another group of people here this morning as well. I would love the opportunity to pray for people who feel like they're facing some giants at the moment. Who maybe feel that there is something, a situation stood before them that they just don't know how to fight on their own. And what I would love is for us to be that team that is cheering them on. 
that when it feels like you can't finish, that we are stood alongside these guys, calling their name and praying for them and and knowing that we have their back. So again, if we could uh, just close our eyes for a second. If you're someone this morning who is really feeling that they are stood before a giant, whatever that looks like for you, and I'm not going to ask anyone to ask you what that is. If, uh, I would love you to, unless you want to share that, but you don't need to share what it is that you're facing. But if you would appreciate prayer this morning, if you would appreciate someone standing alongside you, if you feel that you have a giant that you're facing, could you pop your hand in the air for me, please? Great, thank you. That's fantastic, thank you. Great. So if you could keep your hand in the air, what I would love is the people around you, not to ask you anything about why you have your hand in the air, but just to maybe place a hand on their shoulders and pray for them. And just pray God's strength. Pray God's hunger to keep going, keep finishing, and knowing that they are not alone. So it would be great if we could pray over some of these guys. And as that happens, and as we do that, we're gonna go into our final song. But for the rest of us who maybe aren't praying for someone, I would love if we would sing this song as a commitment. We would sing this song as saying to God, create that hunger in me. I am hungry to finish. I'm hungry to keep going no matter what I face. I don't know what the next months, years have in store for me, but Father, help me to run through them or limp through them and be hungry for that finish that I might one day meet you face to face. Because it's the most significant thing that my life will ever be about.